Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. So today is a big one. It's a big one for me and it's probably a big one for you. You all know Tina Swithin as the author of Divorcing a Narcissist and the founder of One Mom's Battle. She has also recently started a high-conflict divorce coach certification program. So for those of you who are interested in getting into this work, I highly recommend uh, checking out Tina's certification program. Tina Swithin continues to champion children's rights through her family court advocacy. Tina is working to raise awareness of the issues in the family court system and to educate the general public on post-separation abuse and narcissistic abuse. And on the flip side, Tina's remarried and happily remarried. And she resides in San Luis Obispo, California with her husband and her two daughters. And this is a really great conversation, you guys. So many of Tina's story of her of surviving her, what she terms her category five divorce hurricane, and while acting as her own attorney in a high conflict custody battle that turned her family's life upside down for over a decade. If you don't know her story, I highly recommend that you read her book, now a series, Divorcing a Narcissist. Check out One Mom's Battle. She's got a great newsletter and she is always updating people. She did it in real time while it was going on and aspects of it have continued to go on. So anyway, it's simply an honor and a joy for me to have finally gotten the opportunity to interview Tina for the podcast and to connect with her and hopefully join her join forces with her through her family court advocacy. So without further ado, here is my interview with Tina Swithin. Tina, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I'm excited for this conversation. Obviously, I have been I hate to say a fan of your work because that sounds so awful, but I've followed you for years. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm honored to be here today. Thank you. So for those who don't know your story, well, give us a little background. How did you get into this world? I call myself the accidental author and family court advocate. It started in 2000, I would say going back to 2008, where I was trying to make sense of my marriage. And he was constantly telling me that it was my issues. He came from this perfect family and I came from chaos and dysfunction and I needed to work on myself and refuse to go to marriage therapy And I started uncovering some lies that were pretty big lies and just got to the point where I said, what, if he's not going to go to therapy with me, I'm going to go sit down 
and talk about this with someone. And it's unfortunately, and I'm sure you see this as well, even in the mental health profession, unless someone has personally experienced a narcissist, they don't get it. And yeah, even the professionals that even the clinical ones who should have studied it or whatever, when they're faced with, it it doesn't compute for so many people. It really doesn't compute. And I, I think because we hear about narcissism, but we don't see what it looks like for them as a spouse, as a parent. And so there's just this big unknown area that hasn't really been touched on from a clinical, from a psychological perspective when it comes to research and data. And I I sat there and I poured my heart out to this therapist. It was a 90 minute, she was a psychologist, a 90 minute appointment. And at the end, towards the end, she got up and walked across the room, brought back a DSM-5 and opened it up and said, I can't diagnose him but this sounds a lot like what you're dealing with. Read it and tell me if it makes sense to you. And I read the definition of narcissistic personality disorder. And I every bell and whistle went off in my head. Light bulbs are flipping on. But the, the optimist in me, I was actually so excited because my next question was, great, what do we do about it? How we do fix we it? fix yes. it? Yes. Oh, it's a diagnosis. So there's a cure. <laughs> Right. And I'm a fit. I used to be a fit. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But, and when she told me there was no cure for it, that you either accept this was your life or you move on, I couldn't grasp that. And I was actually really upset. And I left her office thinking, I am never going back to this lady. How dare she say I can't fix him? And, uh, I even went home to him and I'm like, this is what she says you have. <laughs> the best. That's the best. We want to do that. I do. I did that too. I was like, oh, I just figured it out. This is called emotional abuse. You're abusing me. And if he knew that he was abusing me, then obviously then he wouldn't do it. Right. right. <laughs> and I look back at myself back so, in 2008. So, it's go, I just want to so hug sweet. you. It's so naive. <laughs> It's less your your heart. And of course, like you and I now, because we're professionals in this area, we see this all the time with our clients and with, we just see it all the time. And, and so we don't, we're not like, we're not shaming anyone by saying that, but it really is a level of naivete to think that we can actually impact this, that we can change it, that we can stop it, that if they just realized, then they would. And of course, the nature of narcissistic personality disorder is that they have a grandiose sense of themselves. So to uh, the idea that they're going to ha- see that they have a disorder, a personality disorder. Yeah, not so much. And it, my, my marriage lasted probably about another mm-hmm. eight months mm-hmm. after that and just completely blew up. And I, somebody who I thought, gosh, he's never been a parent to our little girls And a divorce is actually going to make him step up to the plate and have to parent. Back then, there was nothing on the internet about how a narcissist affects kids, or I truly didn't know what that meant other than he was a miserable person to be married to. And there was a lot of emotional abuse. But I thought, gosh, if he has to 
form a bond with the girls. If he has to go do dad things, that's what they need. That's what I want more than anything is for my kids to have a relationship with both parents. But what I did not realize at the time was that a divorce with a narcissist takes the conflict to a level that most people can't even comprehend. And as as hard as the marriage was, I had no idea what I was walking into when I stepped foot in the family court system in 2009. And they're just not equipped to, to deal with high conflict, child custody battles, divorces. You're both lumped into that same category of being high conflict. And I'm sitting there like a deer in headlights going, I, I hate I'm conflict. not the high I conflict person. Exactly. If you're mad at me, I'm going to be awake for a night, <laughs> like worrying about yes. it. And conflict to me is just, it kills my soul. <laughs> I just kept showing up. And because of the financial abuse that I had experienced, both during the marriage, he had complete control of the finances. And so when the marriage ended, he still retained complete control of the finances. So he was able to hire an attorney. And I'm here with a two-year-old and a four-year-old going to food pantries, trying to feed my kids and having to represent myself in family court because I couldn't afford an attorney. So it started out as World War III right out of the gate. That's, oh gosh, there's so much. It's so interesting. I just want to jump back to the family court thing. I want to get into that a lot more because that's one of the things that you really work with right now. The thing that that I found in family court is that we have a very high conflict case in my family, not between me and my ex, and in and out of dependency court multiple times and then back to family court. And they're always talking about like working on co-parenting, right? As if that, because as if it's both people, as if both people are the problem. (laughs) And when you're in this situation, they really, the lack of education, it's shocking. Even in dependency court, you're like, this is dependency court. Like that, this is your whole thing is children. right? And even there, they're like, let's just set up another mediation so we can really try to come to some agreement. And we're like... When you're trying to come to an agreement, you can't come to an agreement with a narcissist, with someone who's, especially someone with personality disorders, because they're not looking for solution. They're looking for ways to dominate and destroy. <laughs> That's what they're doing, right? Once, once they can no longer control you, they just want to destroy you. And the way the court system looks at it, it's this very barbaric, archaic, victim-blaming mentality where my judge even said, he looked at me and said, you chose to marry this man. You chose to have two children with him. This is not my problem to fix. And so that that is very much the guiding mentality that we're up what against. What did he think his job was? <laughs> right? And, but I'll tell you, I, in hindsight, it's really odd. I'm actually thankful that he said that to me because it allowed me to adjust and look at this as not, I had been in there wanting him to fix everything and save me. And I quickly learned that's not what he's going to do. And mine actually verbalized it, 
but the majority of them, they're just thinking it. And that's where people, I often tell people, it took me almost six years to really see who my ex-husband was and to see behind the mask. I can't go into family court and expect that the judge is just going to see that this person is a problem um, based on what I'm saying. There, We need to believe survivors, but the lens I look at it through now is how did the judge know that I wasn't the problem or that I wasn't a pathological liar. And so I do have some compassion for what they're up against. Um, but it's it's a marathon to get to the point where they do recognize who is the problem person. And that's where it's just, I found in my case, so critical for me to choose my battles wisely and really keep my side of the street sparkling clean. And unfortunately, like you touched on the co-parenting aspect of it, they expect everyone to be singing Kumbaya together on Sunday nights. And you've got a, a tall order in front of you to show up and, and at least show yourself to be a really healthy co-parent until they determine who the problem is. And that's half the battle right there. And because the toxic person is also usually in the courtroom deflecting and blaming and projecting, they are saying that they, they're telling the judge that you're the problem. And so if the so judges have a hard time trying to determine who's telling the truth. And so they do have to not believe the first person who gets their story out but I so fast forward <laughs> not even fast forward so then you represented yourself throughout this whole battle and it went on for how long 10 years from 2009 until 2019 when we successfully terminated his parental rights but I will say as of 2014 my kids were completely safe to where we were we had a no contact order basically and so we've had peace for quite a few years now and i i'm so i i know that we are one of the rare unicorns in the family court system that i was able to successfully protect my kids it's a very broken system let's talk about that cuz it is and i have a lot of experience with it as well and what let's talk about like how is it broken like how what do you i have my ideas about aspects that i think are broken and i haven't done a deep dive into the entire system but i think one of the most broken aspects is that there's no psychological training for judges for attorneys they have no and for us going into it for the litigants, for right, it's all psychological. Almost all of it is psychological, and they don't have that training. No. And I, last November, I became so frustrated with the system. I bought an RV, I stamped a bunch of logos on the back of it about family court advocacy and different organizations that I'm behind and that I wanted to promote. And I basically labeled November Family Court Awareness Month. And I drove from California to South Carolina and back. 
having press conferences all along the way and trying to raise awareness of the brokenness in the system. And part of that journey was really looking at each state and saying, what are the requirements for a judge? What I found is shocking. Most states have zero required hours of domestic violence training for judges, zero. And the ones that do have maybe five hours of domestic violence training, it's a suggestion. It's not a requirement. And then the ones where it is actually required, I don't think I've found a single state that has more than 10 hours of required training for judges who are making decisions that, sadly, I you know, know a lot of moms whose children have been murdered in this system. And so these judges, the DV training that they are getting is so minimal, and it's the 101 version. My six year-old could teach a class that's more complex on domestic violence than what these judges are getting. And that's a huge part of the problem. Another thing I see is that so many of the judges are highly narcissistic themselves. Politicians, like we wonder why they're so narcissistic and they do all these horrible things. It's the personality type that goes into this, right? It's a profile. Yeah, there's a profile and it it fits. It is true for a a high percentage of them. And the issues that are being raised in their courtroom so closely represent who they are at a core level that they can't even understand what the problem is. And there's this threshold of what's acceptable when it comes to parenting in the courtroom. And I think it comes down to compassion fatigue and them being very calloused to the issues that they see every day to where they're seeing such extreme cases of abuse that when I'm standing there trying to explain that my six-year-old is basically has a terrorist as a father who is mentally and emotionally damaging her, they're like, I don't see any bruises. Go on your way. And So there's this disconnect and this difference. My threshold of what's acceptable as a parent is so much different than theirs. It's so tragic. It's so tragic. It's it's tragic, but also it's infuriating because this is their their job. You would think (laughs) this is their job. And you just, and I remember just feeling when I was in the courtroom, like your cattle. And I remember the judge saying to me, Swithin, how long is it going to take today? And I said, your honor, probably I estimate 40 minutes. And he laughed at me and he said, I give you five. And I'm thinking you're going to decide the fate of my children in five minutes. And it's just, you can't comprehend it. And I've always said it would take me longer to go adopt a puppy at my local shelter than it would to decide how what my children's schedule is going to yeah. be. And I've been in dependency court where you've got, where they decide for the next hearing how much time. There's a whole process of investigation that has to happen that they're calling for. And then there's, they're giving, and, they, and they, they block it in units. There are these like half hour units or something like that. And it's like, how many units? And and it's like, how do you know how many units you're going to need when you haven't even done this investigation yet? And then the thing that, that then infuriates me the most is that not having the same judge. So, oh, right. Okay. In, so in family, you usually have the same, is that, 
Do you usually have the same? It depends. It's different in every state. There are some states where you don't know who your judge will be until that morning. And then here in California, I was pretty lucky that I did have the same judge most in of family, the time. Yeah. So Independency, yeah. we've been just, I don't know, whoever's around or something. And when you have a case file that is three massive boxes, massive file boxes with investigations and all sorts of things, but they only get... They, they get the case. They've never had it before. They they read that there's like a one sheet. Yeah, and it's a one it. sheet that, <laughs> tell, like, that can tell you nothing of what's happened over the last 10 years. And it's it, so broken in so many ways. So broken in so many ways. Yeah. Okay. So when you, ter- so when you got the ruling that you could terminate, how did that come about? Probably about two, three years into my custody battle, I started realizing how much this was just a business transaction to the family court system and the the importance of strategy. And so I used to sit in the courtroom and just watch other cases and really starting to learn how the attorneys handled certain situations, what case law they used. And so understanding the strategy aspect of it was critical. And and so part of my strategy, I knew that money was his number one button, which is true with most narcissists. And unfortunately, that button is directly wired to my button, which is my kids. And so you push that one and it's going to automatically trigger, he's going to come and attack the kids. And so I learned really early on, I would rather work three jobs and eat top ramen three meals a day than try to hold him accountable for the court-ordered support. So in my case, I let the arrears balance build and build and never forced you know, it in the court system until it got around $100,000 in arrears and the government came in and took his passport. I knew that I had him backed into a corner that I will completely forgive the $100,000 if you agree to let my husband adopt the girls. And I remarried to a wonderful guy who's been in our lives for many years. And that was what it took. It was the leverage that I had built with the support balance and it finally came to a point where it affected him. He wanted his passport. And so it was a, if you really look at it, he basically gave up his kids for $100,000 and a passport. And when that's, it sums it up right there. That's what it was about. From There's no one. amount of money or travel options in the world that you could offer me <laughs> in exchange for my son. Nope. Not a chance. No, not a chance. But I knew going back to day one, it was about power. It was about control. It was about hurting me and it was about money. And so since then, is it, he doesn't, he's done trying to get you? Yeah, he, we have no, you have as many legal rights to my daughters as he does. So we, other than I've been through some recent issues with his family and other than that, we have zero contact with him. My daughters want absolutely nothing to do with him. They never had a bond with him to begin with. 
And so trying to force that on them when they're looking at him as a, you're a stranger, why are you? How is yeah. that? And I'm thankful because I know that so many kids are, are desperate for that other parent's attention and affection. So when they do turn on the charm and try to use the child as a pawn, the kids are eating it up because they want that relationship, but it's fake. And it's not, you can't, it's not sustainable because there was never a bond there to begin with. So it's very much to hurt the other parent and the kids become the pawns. I'm incredibly grateful that wasn't the direction my case went and that my daughters really were looking at him as you're a stranger. What are you hugging me? What are you doing? You've never been around. And so for your kids, it sounds, was it what was it like for them? I think a lot of my listeners are there. Some of them are still trying to decide whether to leave or not. And a lot of them say that the biggest reason that they want to stay is for the kids. And I've talked ad nauseum about how that's not usually not the best choice. And so can you talk a little bit about what this entire process has been like for your kids? Your girls sound like they're strong and resilient and have their opinions there, but like yeah. it's been yeah. a long it's been a 10 year pro- or more than a 10 year process at this point. Yeah, they're 14 and 16 now. And I really worked hard to shelter them from the reality. And I was just talking to my 16 year old the other day. She is wise beyond her years. And she said, Mom, I never really knew what you were going through. I had no idea that there was this battle going on. And she said, I used to get really frustrated because when I would come to you and ask you questions, you would say, that's an adult topic and your job is to be a kid and let me handle the adult topics. And so I constantly, I, it was exhausting because I had to work overtime to shelter them from the damage that he was doing by directly placing them in the middle. And they've, they've seen a lot and they've been through a lot and they are resilient and they, they're going to go into the world and be little forces to be reckoned with. And I'll tell you now I am because we are not in the court system. I'm able to talk to them candidly about the red flags in people and boundaries and all of these are your instincts and listening to your gut. And I remember a couple of years ago, we were in a restaurant And there was this obnoxious guy talking and my daughter looked at me and she goes, that guy is a total narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) And I just went, oh my God, (laughs) bingo, you're right. But no, going back to the topic of the women who want to stay for the kids, I'll tell you the most heartbreaking messages that I receive on any given week are the ones from women who did stay. And they reach out to me and say, I wish resources like yours would have been available 20 years ago because I stayed for the kids and now my kids have gone on to repeat the cycle of abuse or they are being abused because they've continued in with someone just like dad. And those are the most heartbreaking messages. And I'm a firm believer, even if I had 25% of my children's time, one of the worst case scenarios court, if you end up with the lesser amount of time, we're in a 50-50 system, but whether it's 50% or 25%, I still believe you have a better chance of showing your kids what healthy looks like on your time 
alone and aside from out of that marriage than what we're teaching our kids when we stay and that they believe that's normal. And that even if you're telling them it's not normal, this is not healthy. That's the message they're, yeah, they're, that's what they're living in, right? No amount of, oh, don't do this yourself makes a difference. And I just want to tell my listeners that Tina and I did not talk about this in advance. We did not plan this conversation to align but my listeners know that I say the exact same thing <laughs> all the time. Oh, okay. No, I promise. We did we not, not conspire. <laughs> so this is the fact, guys. This is actually, this is the fact that that staying in an unhealthy relationship, and I and it's heartbreaking to hear these women say this, but it's also really validating for what we say. We, we you and I both always say that the best thing you can do for your children is to get out of these situations, especially if there's abuse. But also, even if there's not abuse, if you're just miserable, if it's any form of toxic, or if you're even if you're just not happy, that to be able to show your children what healthy and happy looks like, even as you said, 25% of the time, you give the, you break the cycle. You're breaking it. Now you see these poor women who are devastated because they're because their their children are repeating it. It's because now it's on them to break it. And if they don't break it, then it goes on for another generation. It's we've got to stop it right here. And we have to do the work that goes along with that because there's a lot of psychological healing. <laughs> so like lots Absolutely. of therapy. I still I, I'll be in counseling for the for rest, the of, rest of our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. And God, you know, it's I was talking to someone, I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but about even working into your if you're gonna to work into your divorce agreement and there's your support agreement, the cost of the therapy that you may need <laughs> for abuse that you if you can prove the abuse and you have like documentation and if it's something that is and you can tie it to look I'm not look I'm not asking for more money but I have experienced all of this and I'm going to need a lot of therapy and I think we're moving in that direction because we just saw Jennifer's law pass it's basically coercive control laws that delve into that emotional and psychological abuse just passed in Connecticut. We just had one pass here in California. There's one that passed in Hawaii. Once those start passing, it, it's a trickle method. It continues to unfold across other states, and it makes it easier to take that legislation and bring it to other states. And so it gives me hope that we are moving in the right direction and that we are recognizing that you don't need a, a you know black eye or a busted lip to be a victim of abuse. I'll tell you, even in my role as an advocate, even in the first few years, speaking out about this, it took me a long time to be able to say I'm a victim of domestic right. violence. Because you don't have bruises. And that's, exactly. yeah, I wrote an article called because we don't have, because I don't have bruises years and years ago, because I came out publicly about my emotional abuse and the backlash and there was an article that had gone viral on the Huffington Post and the backlash against me personally and about, I wonder what her husband thinks of the fact that she wrote this. And I'm like, what about, wait a minute. It was really devastating and re-abusing and re-traumatizing, right? 
Yeah, and it is true. The coercive control thing and getting those legislations passed is so important. In the UK, they it's coercive control is illegal, period, end of story, because they understand that. And we have to get to that place here in the US. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I often say that the abuse I suffered post-separation was far worse than what I endured in my marriage. Let's talk um, about post-separation abuse, because that is a a term that you coined and right. And that you have you've you have a is it just it's postseparationabuse.com, right, which is a fantastic breakdown of everything that that means. And there's a wheel that you use and Can you talk a little bit about what it means? Yeah. So we took, you know, basically it's a playbook for the narcissist. It prepares someone for exactly what, because so much of it is shocking. You're like, oh my God, this can't be happening. But to be able to go, no, this is happening and this is happening to everybody else. It is literally their playbook. It's the neglectful or abusive parenting. It's discarding the kids. One of the things that we see a lot of is these narcissists or toxic humans will fight for 50-50 just to hurt you. And then they're discarding the kids with the They were never there. I always say, go to what the baseline was in your marriage. How often were they around the kids and involved? And that's what it will likely end up at over time. The court system isn't going to get you there. You're going to see them fighting for the kids. And then as soon as they have that win, that is so important to them, discarding the kids. And that could be with their new feed supply, the new girlfriend, the new stepmom, whatever it is, their parents isolation, those smear campaigns. I went through it. My ex-husband and I lived in a very small town. We were very active in the business community. And I just remember being mortified. It was during Girl Scout cookie season. And I thought, I'm just going to stay home in sweatpants and eat Girl Scout cookies and drink wine for the rest of my life because he's running around telling people I've had affairs. I've never cheated on anyone in my life. It's not Not in your DNA. could yeah. not. I couldn't do that. And it happens. People do, but I personally didn't. So he was telling people I had four different affairs and I Which just is all projection mortified. because that's probably exactly how many he had. But he was doing <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Great. And then the, the harassment, the stalking, I remember, and so much of it flies under the radar. It's not outright, I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to, I'm going to cut your throat. It's the, I remember he dropped off wedding videos on my porch one day and it was just unsettling. And, and what are you going to do? Call the police and they're going to say, oh, that's so nice of him for returning those. And, and, and a big one is the legal abuse that they, the courtroom becomes their platform to continue their reign of terror to hold you hostage. One of the things I just posted about today is when you are assigned your family court case number, you're also assigned your own personal terrorist. That's really what it feels like. And the courtroom is their platform. And the legal or the financial abuse, we've talked about that. That is their number one button. And counter-parenting, that's a big one. We're supposed to co-parent And we are capable of co-parenting, but you've got someone who is doing things just to spite you and using the children. And then the final one is claims of alienation. They cannot 
take responsibility for their own lack of relationship with the child or the fact that the child wants nothing to do with them because they were abusive. And so their their go-to weapon, I could talk for an hour just on alienation. It's my personal opinion, absolute junk science, and it's the weapon of the abuser. Um, And it's what I see abusers use a lot to counter claims of against them. And it's a really convenient way for them to flip the Mm, table. Yeah. That's a tough one. Cause I've also seen it where it's real, like where it's not an abuse tactic. Like I think that there's, I, I know it, this, it's a very touchy and very controversial topic. It's a big it's a topic. Big topic. And I have yeah. definitely seen cases where it is a hundred percent real and, and it's, and it's, it's not, it's the abuser who is alienating the children against the, the, the other parent as a tactic of abuse because of the lies with lying and all of that stuff. And, uh, but it's, yeah. I, and I tell people, absolutely. It does happen. We refer to it. If you have to have a title, I tell people stay away from the name, the labels, the titles. If you absolutely have to have a title for it, it's domestic violence by proxy, but the alienation it has really deep concerning roots and an equally concerning present day movement. It is, it, yes, but I do validate that there are, that's what the narcissist tries to do is turn the children against you. Exactly. Ugh, there's so much. So now you, there's so much. Oh my God, we could do this all day. Um, <laughs> so you are an advocate clearly in the in the courts for the in for change advocate for children advocate for women obviously and you also have are starting is this just starting your program to train coaches on how to help other women like the way the way that we do right <laughs> spread it because yeah. we can't yeah. do it all <laughs> Cannot do it all. And I, my kids are safe and I have, I'm remarried and this work takes a toll on you. It it really does. And I'm, my goal, my goal is to move into advocacy and legislative change and get involved in those channels. So last year I started the high conflict divorce coach certification program. And we're actually in our second session. The first one was January. We just started the second one. And training people to, so I can pass the torch and they can go out and do what I do in their own communities and be a resource. Because I think the current statistics are that three to 5% of cases are high conflict, but those cases take up 80 to 90% of the court's resources. So there's such a need for divorce coaches. And I remember when I first started this work, I didn't know what to call it. I I never heard that. Exactly. I think you and I started around the same time. And it's this, it's true. People didn't know what a divorce coach was. Now there are like certification programs, like divorce coaching certification programs. And I'm, and people are like, are you certified? I'm like, I've been doing it longer than that certification program was around. (laughs) You know, I'm certified by them. (laughs) Right. I had a hard right. time starting my business because nobody knew what the fuck I did. They were like, oh, right? Why do I need I you? I remember when, when I got, 
Yeah. When I got that terminology from my therapist about he's a narcissist and I remember calling my dad and my dad goes, well, in my day, we just called them assholes. <laughs> but if you want to give them a special title, go for it. But back then there was nothing on the internet. You could not find I found one article back then and nothing was available. Now it's like everybody is a narcissistic abuse coach and narcissist. Yes. like, Stop. yes, it's so true. And <laughs> yeah. it's so, and you know, the word is overused and it's right. And for Absolutely. those of us who are actually dealing, I remember when I was, we were in couples therapy 150 years ago, this was probably 15 years ago before, just before my divorce. And my, our couples therapist was like, Kate, you're a codependent. You need to go and read all the things on codependency. And David, you're a narcissist and you need to go and read everything there is on narcissism. And the only thing he could find was stuff on narcissistic personality disorder, which he doesn't have. And so he's, I don't, but this is a spectrum. This is, and he couldn't. And so basically, of course, he was like, oh, I I guess I can't find anything. So my work is done. (laughs) So. Which tells you but everything. But here's a new codependency book for you, Kate. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but here, Melody Petey wrote you another one. It's like, great. It's just, yeah, it's true. We've been around the block. We've been around for a while. We're pioneers in this area. So I love that you're training more women. And so tell me, tell us a little bit more about the program. Because at this point, it's like, Listen, I think this is a great thing for women who have been through this, women who have been there and done that and want to help and want to give back and might be starting up their careers again post-separation. No, and it that's why it's such a perfect fit because I know for myself, I wanted to know that there was purpose to what I had been through. And so when it organically happened and I would connect with other moms in the courtroom, it just started me off on this career path that I never planned or knew was possible. And so now I've brought together, and we should probably get you on there as an instructor. I have brought together Dr. Romani, Dr. Christine Danback, some really phenomenal minds in all different areas of law, of mediation, in psychology, the business world. And so I've brought in all of these instructors, an eight-week program to help people not only understand everything you need to know about how to be a support to people going through this, but also how to start your business and branding and social media and all of those things. Because I always say I I could work seven days a week and not keep up. And so there's such a need and it's a new niche that absolutely necessary. And we are definitely, the culture is shifting around this and we need more of this work so that uh, we can keep up with the changing culture, right? And really shift it. I love it. Oh my gosh, Tina, this is great. So where can people find you and information on the program? All of this will also be in the show notes. Sure. My website is onemomsbattle.com. And then the High Conflict Divorce Coach program is HC for High Conflict Divorce Great. Awesome. And you're all over social media and the internet and all of the places. I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> It's exhausting. (laughs) Tina, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I so appreciate it. I'm just, yeah, grateful that you're in this space. Thank you. I am grateful for the work you're doing. Take care. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.